The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Big welcome to anybody who's new today. And uh, you can introduce yourself to me, or Carrie and Tom are our program hosts, and uh, they'll be able to answer any questions you might have. And we're taking this fall, uh, the first month, September and early October, to kind of look at some of the basics of our sitting practice. But then, probably going forward, I'll talk a lot about how do we work, how do we relate skillfully to the thinking mind. Because that's, as we've, all of us, anybody who's even done a little bit of mindfulness or Buddhist awareness practice, knows that the issue of thinking has to be addressed. (laughs) And of course, it's not exclusive to sitting meditation practice. It's all about life. It's just that sort of the definition of ordinary existence when we're out in the world doing what we do is the thoughts just sort of of run free, right? Like our animals sometimes run free, our pets. They just get control of the house, control of our lives. And it it's so pervasive we don't even realize that our existence or who we think we are or what we think is happening is really this play of mentality, mental activity. Um, When uh, the last few weeks I've been talking about some of the instructions the Buddha gave in his famous talk on mindfulness of breathing, one of the very common and useful meditation instructions the Buddha gave. Probably one of the most systematic instructions for sitting meditation practice were these 16 instructions for mindfulness of breathing. And uh, it really covers the whole path of awakening. And the first instruction is, of course, the hardest. And it's it's like a lot of people think, uh, who don't know much about uh, Buddhist teachings, think that Mindfulness of breathing is sort of a preliminary meditation practice, and then when you get you know, good, you're no longer a beginner, then you move on. But it's really the other way, because the first instruction is one establishes mindfulness to the fore. Well, it takes real practice. It takes real understanding to establish mindfulness in front of us, mindfulness right in the middle, right? I mean, hopefully you've noticed that. That's like the first insight, how difficult it is to be in the present moment, how easy it is to be lost in thought. So I'm not kidding. If you don't know that experience about how difficult it is to be in the present moment, it, means, it just means you're a beginner. And that's okay. It's good. Like if you're a beginner, it's good to know you're a beginner. What you don't want to have happen is be a beginner and don't realize you're a beginner. Because you can go a long time thinking that you're not a beginner, that you're meditating, but basically you're just lost in thought. You may be lost in thoughts about meditating (laughs) or being a Buddhist or whatever. And those may be better thoughts to be lost in than thoughts about the twins or whatever else you might be thinking about. But the trouble is when we don't realize that we're lost in thought, there's quite literally no hope. The Buddhist line is pretty provocative, 
provocative. He says, as if already dead, right? Like if we're negligent, unaware that we're lost in thought, it's like being on autopilot. So in terms of of a spiritual life, it's as if we're already dead, right? Because there's really no learning that's going to happen when we're lost in thought. We're basically, the mind is basically acting out its habits. Whatever habits have the most momentum in any moment, they express themselves, right? And then one particular phrase or pattern, habit pattern, then will just trigger whatever habit pattern it's conditioned to trigger. You know, whatever one has the most momentum, most latent, ready to blossom and habit ready to blossom and express itself and then that will trigger the next and that's what's sort of not a bad description for an ordinary human life one habit pattern triggering the next triggering the next triggering the next except it gets complex because we we're not only triggering our own habit patterns but we're being triggered by other people our habits are being triggered by other people and we're triggering other people right so it gets very complicated culturally in our families and in our wider culture, that we're just triggering each other. And these habit patterns are deep and ancestral, meaning they're sort of passed on one generation after another. All the pain, all the suffering, all the greed, all the hate, all the fear. So this is what we call ordinary existence. Habit energies begetting habit energies. And not all our habit energies are unwholesome. Fortunately, right? We do see expressions of beautiful habit energies, but to the degree the mind is unaware of what's going on, there's no way to develop, to strengthen those positive habit energies and weaken the unhelpful, un- uh, unwholesome habit energies. So we might sort of culturally or within our families or within our own heart and mind and body we might blossom into a phase of being relatively wholesome. But if we're unaware, if we're not sort of learning, the causes and conditions, the habits could later blossom into, you know, a 10-year hell realm where things are really difficult. A lot of negative emotions that we're feeling, seeing, but not aware that that's what's happening. Just That's just who I am or what's happening to me, Right? So Buddhist practice, what the Buddha pointed to is uh, establishing a stable present moment awareness, which is not easy, so that all of a sudden there's this wise perspective. Oh, this is happening. This is how it's unfolding. This is what it's looking and feeling like right now in me, around me. Oh, oh. And that's quite impactful to begin to see this impersonal play of habits, causes and conditions. It's very impactful. It's like waking up. That's why we, in the tradition, the Buddha uses that phrase. In fact, the Buddha isn't the name of a person. It just means somebody who's woken up, somebody who's awake. That's what that title is, someone who's the awakened one, someone who's gone, whoa, it's like this. This is what's going on. And it's sort of, as you might imagine, just from thinking about it, you know, it's, it would be quite shocking as it is for us because we, you know, as individuals, we do awaken 
in moments, at least in the direction of awakening in moments, right? Like we're less lost in our thought. Otherwise, we couldn't in other moments be completely lost in thought, right? So if there are moments when we're completely lost in thought, but they're not all the moments, then there are some moments when we're not completely lost in thought. And maybe even some moments when we're just a little lost in thought, which means if there's 20% lost in thought, there's 80% a sense, a wise sense. This is what we mean by wisdom. Oh, it's like this. This is what's playing itself out internally, externally. This is what's moving here. These are the habits that are begetting habits in me, around me. It looks like this. It feels like this. It's just all of this stuff being known, being felt. But I'm not to some degree, confused but by, by what I'm seeing and feeling. Oh, it's like this. And that we call a moment of relative, you know, to some degree, mindfulness. Being aware, being reflectively aware of the present moment, of what's moving. It's always about movement. That's another telltale sign that the mind is awake, is it's observing things being in motion. When you're aware of thought, but the thought feels like an edifice, then you're still identified with the thought. Oh yeah, this is what I'm thinking, this is who I am. But when you're seeing thoughts begetting thoughts as a a motion or sensation as a movement or sound as a movement, then that means there's more space of wisdom that understands what hearing is. Hearing is a succession of sounds being heard. It never stops. Seeing is a succession of visual, you know, experience being known, being seen. Touches being felt, thoughts being known, emotions being known, but one leading to the other. That's why being more and more awake leads to letting go. Because when the mind is awake, when the mind is mindful, present moment awareness, It sees that everything's in motion. Holding, being tight, grasping, trying to have solid ground, it doesn't make sense because everything's moving. It only makes sense to get tight when we feel like there's a possibility of solid ground, like I finally got somewhere, I'm right, or this, I'm wrong. It doesn't really matter. but, But a mind that is aware, that's awake with wisdom, aware with wisdom, is seeing the truth, which is its flow. That's why sometimes in, in a Buddhist sense we say everything is a natural process because that phrase, natural process, right, it comes with the reality of change. It's not a stagnant, it's not like something I can build a house on. So the heart learns when the heart is in the moment, the changing moment, the flow of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling, then the heart isn't holding, isn't uh, in a confused way imagining I'll get solid ground. It gives up on that project. And that's where we get a taste of freedom. That's the freedom we bump into. So that's where we're going with this many week, probably at least a month, maybe a month and a half, when we're talking about thoughts. Because 
It's really, as I've talked about in the past, a change of allegiance. Everybody here, we want safety, right? That's just the primal need that we're seeking to fulfill, safety. So it's really a question of how are we seeking safety right now or in every moment of our life? What is our heart doing? What is the mind doing to feel safe? Mostly what ordinary human beings do to feel safe, what do we do? We think about what will make us safe. What I need to get, what I need to get rid of to be safe. Who I need to become before I'll feel safe being who I am. Or who I need to change so I'll feel safe. Fix. Who I need to fix so I'll feel safe. So, and then when we're thinking, we're always thinking about getting solid ground, holding the solid ground we think we have, getting to the solid ground we think is over there, getting rid of what's in the way of solid ground, right? Because some solid, something permanent is synonymous with safety. Now, the wisdom awareness approach, the way the Buddha pointed, what the Buddha pointed to, was that, honey, you're not going to find that kind of safety anywhere. You're not going to find any solid ground anywhere. Give up on that project. And you don't have to take my word for it. Just wake up to some degree. You'll see everything's in motion. The solid ground you imagine isn't, you know, there is nothing that looks like what we imagine. We can imagine. See, this is the thing about abstraction, about thinking, the construction, the meaning we construct, we can construct the idea of permanence. We can construct the idea of safety, like in terms of my relationship with my spouse, I can construct a perfect life right? that has a sense of being perfect, like, oh yeah, that's, I need her to be this way, I need my home to be this way, and in particular, I need my cat to be this way, you know, I had a hard time finding our cat last night. Luckily, Wynn, you know, gets up in the middle of the night, wanders the neighborhood, looking for our cat. I wonder what our neighbors think. <laughs> but, uh, but those ideas look good, right? Whatever we, and like same thing with our culture, our society, what that would look like, that where we would feel safe will become this way, a just, fair, you know, a woke culture, one that gets it, gets what's going on, what's been going on, and heals the past, transforms things. So we're a good place, safe place, a place I can trust, right? And then we cling to that idea and the trouble with that abstraction, like that idea, is then, you know what becomes an existential threat? The way it is. Reality becomes an exos- existential threat to any constructions we construct about ourselves or about our world. Because our world will never, ever, ever look like our constructions, our cognitive, imaginative constructions of what will be good what will make me feel safe. This is like, and a lot of religious spiritual traditions are based on this sort of idealistic imaginings and then clinging. And then the trouble is we've got to kill people who cling to other imaginings, you know, or convert them. 
right? Isn't that true? That's our history. And even consumerism is just another belief system. You know, like, you know, getting getting there, getting the sort of retirement account or the house or the, you know, whatever particular ki- kitchen countertop that's in. <laughs> then we'll be here. Right? Or the, you know, for progressive types, it's the plug-in car or the, you know, solar plan- panels on the house or whatever it might be. There's always some religion. If only, then. Then I'll be safe. Then I'll be cool. Then I'll, things will be right. Then I can finally put down the existential anxiety that I have because I have it because I haven't gotten to that safe place. But what wisdom teaches us and what the Buddha says is, honey, there's no safe place. Deal with it. <laughs> no, he's, he's, he's a little bit more gentle than that. Right? Because that can sound like, yeah, if we'll only we resign ourselves to you know, the existential free fall, the nihilistic free fall, right, then you'll be happy because you won't be chasing a false god. Right? But it's not that. It's ac- I mean, it sounds like that initially before we actually do the practice. It sounds a little bit like, hey, get real. There isn't any ground. Grow up, you know. But lo and behold, and this is just something we're checking out in our practice, right? We use our anchor. We come back to the breath. We come back to the body to break the addiction to our thoughts, to keep thinking about this and that. And then when thoughts arise... Because we have some momentary, it doesn't last very long, but momentary ease, balance, clarity with the physicality of sitting and the physicality of breathing and physicality of hearing, some of these more ordinary phenomena that for most of us don't trigger a lot of thought. So we learn to be intimate with these ordinary moving elements of the present moment, breathing, breathing, feeling the body sitting, the sensations coming and go in the body, hearing, right? And then when we have some more full, whole, present moment awareness with these ordinary phenomena, then thoughts are still going to happen, right? So now they're in the background, in the periphery, but then they're going to reemerge in the forefront of attention when some juicy memory or whatever, something gets provoked and we think about our to-do list or whatever it might be, But now the knowing mind is much more balanced, much more familiar with sensations changing, with thought, uh, with uh, sounds, the breath moving. It's not pretending that there's solid ground, not imagining there's solid ground. So then when the wisdom looks at thought, it can look, see thought as just a temporary phenomena. Well, that's just a thought coming and going. That's just that thought. I mean, that's actually the truth. So we're just able to see thought in a more ordinary but accurate way. What is a thought, actually? What is a thought? Not the content of a thought, but what is the thought as a mental phenomena? So just think a thought, like I always use pink elephant because it's something we normally don't think about, so you probably don't have an emotional charge was what was that Disney character? Dumbo. Dumbo. Was it pink? No, it was gray, wasn't it? 
Oh, did he have a dream about pink elephants? Oh, okay. Well, so you might have an emotional charge about them. <laughs> okay. Let's see. How about an orange elephant? <laughs> right, so if we think the thought, orange elephant, and do that a few times, but not that you're trying to figure something out about orange elephant, but you're just noticing that, noticing what that is as a mental phenomenon. And it doesn't matter whether the thought is more about the verbiage, pink elephant, or you have a mental image that you're constructing and flashes there. But do you notice how ephemeral that is, the thought, pink elephant? It's like very wispy. And once that thought, that mental image, pink elephant, is done, it's like there's nothing there. It doesn't like, because of the emotional, lack of emotional charges, there's like no trace. It's not like heavy, pink elephant, I hope, for you. <laughs> Maybe you need a therapist. <laughs> if pink elephant, or no, where are we? Orange elephant is problematic. Or a Jungian therapist probably would be good. Like, what does that mean? But So what gives thoughts, what makes thoughts impactful is this process of association. So we think something... But then anything related to that mental image, right? Then it sort of like sympathetically vibrates. But even that, although it feels so much about me, that sort of emotional vibration when we, you know, something like if I said something like the thought, you're all going to die, right? Well, we're probably some of us, (laughs) all of us, maybe some of you to a, a terrible degree, we're going to feel some reverberation with that thought. But even that reverberation is just that. It's just that movement, like a river of emotion. Or maybe it's more visceral for some of you, right? And you, you kind of get a hardness in your heart. But even that is just that. It's just that being known. Or you maybe flash on seeing one of your parents. You were there when they died and, and you have that image has made an impression in your mind. So it comes to mind when I say, we're all going to die, you know. But even something much more juicy, something with more latent roots in our mind-body system, even that is pretty ephemeral. When the wisdom is there to see it and digest it, every little reverberation of what that sets in motion Keep seeing it, keep seeing it, keep feeling it. Just that being felt, just that being seen, just that terrifying image being seen, just this reverberation in the body being felt, just these other thoughts. When and I, uh, <laughs> for some strange reason, that probably could use a Jungian therapist, like apocalyptic films, wins my wife, some of you know her, she teaches here quite a bit, and... Uh, so we Googled recently, like, best apocalyptic film. <laughs> like, we were thinking, a good one, but not too scary. You know, we don't... And the one that came up is one of those ones that just... I don't, it's probably been 15 years. I don't know if I should say it, because it's left a, like, a really deep impression. It was so apocalyptic, so believable, just the feeling tone of it, that when I saw it, like, it came up as number one in this Google search. 
Yeah, I can tell you. <laughs> you can Google. <laughs> but beware, because, because when we watch things or live things, even worse, you know, they leave impressions. To the degree we're not completely mindful, to that degree we don't completely digest the experience. So there's a trace. Like kids who have been abused, right? Some of you as children had really challenging situations arise. And we did our best to sort of be present. But as kids, you know, we don't have too many tools. One of them is bury it, right? And not that we think this at the time, but hope someday that we can let it percolate to the surface and let everything that couldn't move when we were three then maybe move when we're 45 or whatever. So, um, but I noticed that I haven't completely digested everything that arose from that movie seen that movie. It was so bleak, even though it has kind of a happy ending. I mean, in apocalyptic sense. <laughs> as much as you, there's happiness when there's been the apocalypse. But, uh, but uh, the sort of images, right, like, because this is the thing about hope. This is the thing about wanting solid ground. You didn't think this would make sense in the general scheme of the talk, but we'll get back to this, right? <laughs> because it's all about solid ground. And the reason people like my wife and I like apocalyptic films is because one of the things that happens in Buddhist practice is we're learning to make peace with absolutely everything. Learning to uncover our heart and mind that's okay with whatever plays out. Isn't that the kind of heart and mind you want? I mean, wouldn't that be ideal to have a wisdom, a love, whatever you want to call it, that is built for no matter what might unfold. Because one thing we learn by paying attention in life, reading books, talking to friends, reading history, is that pretty much anything can happen, right? There are no guarantees. If you think there are guarantees, that also means you're not awake, Right? To whatever degree we have expectations, there's that joke that's kind of made the rounds a number of times. Want to make God laugh? Make plans. Right? You know that joke. Because we kn- what we should know, like for people who have been cultivating mindfulness, the one certainty is we know we don't know. Right? We know that it's uncertain. It's uncertain. Who knows? These are good things to keep reminding ourselves. Who knows? You wake up in the morning, it'd be really useful to say to ourselves, well, who knows what's going to happen, how it will play out today? Who knows? Only, the only sense of like knowing expectations is when we've constructed with our thoughts an idea of what should happen, what we expect to happen, and we're clinging to it. It's okay to have an idea of how today's going to play out, what you might make for lunch today, for example, some of those heavy things. It's okay to have an idea, but it's always good to know, well, who knows? Who knows whether I'll make it home? You know, it could be a terrible thing, like a car accident, but it might be you just run into a friend and go out together. You know, who knows what will play out? So what we do know is that we don't know. And that's, in a funny way, the kind of ground we learn 
to inhabit as a Buddhist practitioner, someone following these teachings. It's like, that's our certainty. We know that we don't know, and we realize that the mind, the heart, or wisdom, it actually can make peace with that, knowing that we don't know. It makes the mind really alert and interested in the dynamic present moment, like what's playing out is emo- in terms of emotion and thought and sensation and visually hearing-wise, what we see around us, know around us. Because it's <coughs> it's kind of has that quality of freshness, aliveness to the present moment. It is quite literally the present moment bursting forth in each moment. If ever we're bored, it's because we're missing that the moment is bursting forth. We know that we don't know. And not only that, it's completely disappearing. It's falling away. Whatever this is, is falling away so something can burst forth and then it falls away. And what makes it seem in moments so dead or insignificant or boring is we're believing our thoughts, we're identifying, we're fixing on our thoughts about things instead of being more in the place of not knowing. And this goes back to this you know, basic practice and why we're going to be talking about thoughts so much because we're literally constructing our world. And we can use thoughts skillfully, like we can construct the world with the thought, who knows? Maybe not so, right? The Dharma, the Dharma as the teachings of the Buddha, right? That word gets used in different ways. Sometimes the word Dharma or Dhamma means the way it is, but sometimes it's also used in terms of the teachings of the Buddha pointing to the way it is. So, you know, the way it is, these teachings, they're all words, thoughts. But they're thoughts that sort of point the mind. This is sort of the very definition of skillful teachings. They're words, concepts, stories that point our heart and mind to the wildness, the aliveness, the ungroundedness of the present moment where we can practice, take our time practicing being at ease, being curious, open, interested, being relaxed and at ease with the ungrounded, uncertain, wildness of the present moment. Who knows? You see, can you, can you sense, and you might even notice a little anxiety, that could be a, a good barometer, but just sense right now like that place of knowing that the mi- the mind knowing that it doesn't know the moment undefined there's real energy there that's another telltale sign of being in the present moment it has a lot of energy the the reason we often feel like we need a lot of caffeine, among other things, exciting gossip, exciting, terrifying news, or in movies and books, to make us feel alive, is because our general strategy is to be disconnected from the aliveness of the present moment. We're lost in our thoughts, which feel solid, but they stagnate. They, we feel a little dead and numb because we're disconnected. 
right? So instead of getting another cup of joe or whatever you do to, to bring some energy into your life, unsafe sex, I mean, it's amazing what people do to feel alive, you know, having affairs or bungee jumping or, I mean, it would be interesting to hear what people do to feel alive. Sort of like uh, inventory of our neurosis and neuroses, <laughs> because that's we we do something like uh, that usually comes with a cost, but you know it sort of shakes us out of the deadness of our life. But all we have to do is uh, go beyond any fixed ideas we have about who I am, what's happening, what this is. We just need to be present. Because the present moment feels very alive. You know, sometimes people, they go outside and they sit under a tree, you know, and see a beautiful sight, and they feel so alive. And then they want to build some kind of spiritual monument like to this sacred space. It must be this space. But it was that in that place, the mind dropped its fixed, its dependence on its ideas about things. Right? The conditions were such that it shocked the mind into the present moment. And then it felt alive, not because of the snow on the leaves, but because the mind wasn't clinging to its thoughts about things. Because generally you'll see that, you'll open up, you'll feel very alive, and then the mind will want to capture it. I'm going to take a photograph. You know, I'm, I'm going to journal about this space. And I'm not belittling those activities, but you see it's a way of capturing wanting it to be solid ground. Instead of really understanding what just happened, the mind momentarily wasn't clinging because of the beauty or whatever it was. could even be a near accident in your car. You know, can shock us out of our fixed way of being. And we feel all of a sudden very alive, grateful to be alive, uncertain about what's next, but then we want to fill it in with an idea that we cling to. And we become a little numb and a little dead again. So this is the thing. When we use an anchor like coming back to the body, coming back to the breath, coming back to hearing, I've said this before, the idea, the concept of me coming back to my breath, there is few things more boring than that concept. Like coming back to my body, coming back to my breath. The idea is deadening, but the experience is enlivening. Right? And it isn't about the breath or the body or the hearing. It's about coming into the present moment, the aliveness, the wildness, the uncertainty of the present moment. And so that aliveness is a better barometer than any idea you have. Right? We're moving into a place where there's a lot of energy and initially we'll re- react or we'll relate to that energy with anxiety, at least a lot of us will, because it will be unfamiliar. So we'll want to capture it, tell ourselves a story and cling to that, I'm being with the breath. And then what we're really doing is we're clinging to the idea of be doing mindfulness of breathing. Instead of really being intimate, the breath, like everything, is a wild activity. There's nobody doing it. We, the idea that I'm breathing in and I'm breathing out, that's a boring idea. And it will be very hard to continue your practice if that idea is dominating your mind. I'm breathing in again. 
I'm breathing out again. And this is supposed to be fun. <laughs> this is supposed to be awake. You know, it's like nobody continues the practice if their practice is dominated with the idea that I'm breathing in and I'm breathing out. And breathing in is like this. And breathing out is... So it's not about the idea. The idea is there to point the mind to the actual wild experience of breathing in. You see, it's very hard because even when I say that, immediately it's like our little videotape of what the breath looks like comes in. It's like, no, no, there's nothing good here. There's nothing interesting here. I think you're wrong. And we don't actually want to check it out, like being with the breath coming in. And it isn't the breath. It could be walking out to your car or feeling the snowflakes against the skin or sitting down with your loved one at lunch today or whatever it might be. Anything will do. So we'll keep going with this. I'll give more sort of specific instructions from the Buddha and from other teachers about how to work with thoughts as we go on for the next several weeks. But we have time maybe for one comment before the children come in or question you might have about what I've said today. What comes to mind? Yeah. John, you want to start us off? Yeah, this is a, uh, a clarification uh, of what you said. Like, wouldn't it be great to be in a place where you're okay no matter what's going on. and Which also would involve freaking out. Like, I would like to be okay even if emotionally I was freaking out. Okay, right. But my clarification question is that even though I'm okay with whatever's going on, that doesn't imply that what is going on is okay. What it means is like, Given that there's tremendous injustice and suffering, what is, is it helping them for me to freak out? Or would it be better, like in terms of figuring out how I'm going to show up, for the mind to be balanced and okay? Right, so I can then be more, better equipped to do something about it. Right, and part of it is like, why would I be, why is my heart surprised? by injustice. Why are we surprised by it? Because I see my own hate. I see my own ignorance. right? So people who have more power, their hate, their ignorance is going to move through that power that they have. Right? So, like, I've seen what moves in my heart around my partner. Somebody I actually love. Someone who's really sweet and kind. And I see that. So when we're surprised and shocked by the injustice and the hate and the violence in the world, it's because we haven't done all of our work of waking up yet. And the same thing could be said with beauty and goodness. When we're surprised by goodness and beauty and justice, when it does emerge for periods of time, it shouldn't surprise us because human beings are capable of tremendous kindness and compassion and justice and wisdom, right? It's like we're capable of the whole spectrum, every one of us. And it's just a matter of circumstance. You put me in a certain set of circumstances, I'd probably do some really despicable things. I'm not, I I don't claim to be, uh, because this heart and mind has been conditioned by this world. We have all been conditioned by this world. And it's a mixture of wisdom and ignorance. Oh, yeah, Shannon, sir. 
So I'm listening and I I hear the words um, wholesome and uh, hostile and violent. And it seems like there's a perturbability that's being expressed in qualifying these things. The thing is, we each have our own worldview, right? And the values that we use as a metric to qualify the way it is. Um, I think those are ideas and those are thoughts and uh, expresses um, perturbability as opposed to imperturbability. And what do we? What do you think is skillful to do with per- perturbability? Um, What's a skillful way for you to relate to that when that happens? Well, when I'm when I'm sitting and breathing, um, my thoughts are having a conversation or a play, a dialogue with my wise mind or my mind of knowing. And I think that, um, yeah, just strengthening that and being able to be in the present moment, you know, and shed uh, these culturally imprinted values that I use to look at the world, you know, my thoughts that I use to look at the world, everything that we have to sort of sift through. I'm sorry, what was your question again? <laughs> no, no, I think you answered it because it, it really, that's the interesting question. The world is going to, what we see, what we feel, what we hear about, it's going to trigger all kinds of responses in our heart, in our mind. And then the question isn't to pretend that we're in balance with what we're seeing or experiencing around us or in us, but how to relate to the imbalance that arises. So there is this shadow in Buddhism about like pretending that we have balance when we don't have balance. Yeah. Well, I, I, and, and to speak to the, the balance and pretending we have this solid ground, I mean, um, that's again a thought or a part of the whole illusion, right? Yeah, and yeah. the constructs that our mind sort of builds around us to keep us safe. But I would like to say that um, while you were speaking, I definitely felt like, uh, you know, the paradoxes arise and they're so wonderful, you know, and, I, and exciting. But I think that the, uh, there is a solid ground, only the words solid ground don't aptly uh, connect with faith or that wise mind and centered being as being a solid ground, right? It's paradoxical. I'm, I'm done talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think that what I think the takeaway from the talk and from your comments is this is an interesting place to check out, to learn a little bit more, and not to be feel like we have to be able to articulate it because it's not easy to articulate. So if anything I said kind of felt a little off. That makes sense to me, right? But the point is to get curious about the work. That's really the point. And we do need to let the children in now. Thanks for coming, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.